0: you're listening to the skylight books podcast we're an independent general interest bookstore putting great reads in the hands of people in the los Feliz neighborhood of los angeles hosted by resident skylighters we're here to bring you new and exciting author conversations group reads and bookseller chats happy listening
1: hello listeners and welcome to the skylight books podcast i am your bookseller host for this episode justin reamer today we are so excited to have Ann K. Yoder with her debut novel, The Enhancers, which has been described as a dizzying, kaleidoscopic novel of three teenage friends navigating the journey to adulthood in a techno-pharmaceutical society that looks a lot like reality. That's according to Lydia Kiesling. Um, Today, uh, in conversation, Ann is going to be talking with author Amanda Goldblatt. Let me tell you a little bit about both of them. Ann K. Yoder's Fiction, Essays, and Criticism have appeared in Fence, Bomb, Tin House, NY Tyrant, and Make, and has been recognized in Best American Non-Required Reading, RIP. She is the author of two poetry chapbooks and is a staff writer for the millions. She writes, lives, and occasionally dispenses pharmaceuticals in Chicago. Amanda Goldblatt's Fiction and Essays can be found at Guernica, Chicago Review, Fence, and elsewhere. She was a 2018 National Endowment for the Arts Creative Writing Fellow and has worked with writers as a contingent instructor at Washington University in St. Louis, the University of Michigan, Eastern Michigan University, Story Studio Chicago, and Northeastern Illinois University. Her debut, Hard Mouth, an adventure novel about grief, was published by CounterPoint in 2019. Amanda lives in Chicago with her architect partner and no dog. Um, Thanks both of you for being here, and uh, Anne, did you want to start off with uh, a taste of of your new novel?
0: Sure. Yeah, great. Thank you, Justin. Uh, Thank you Skylight Books, and thank you, Amanda. Uh, I will start off uh, in the midst of things, um, and I will just let the text be self-explanatory. as he texted to say she needed a companion for focus. I never knew what to expect when I received these texts. Sometimes the house was empty, but more often there'd be a small crowd waiting. This time when I arrived, she gave me a kiss on the cheek and whispered that Celia was in a way. I followed her downstairs and Celia was there, curled on the couch. As he sat down beside her, he's not worth this kind of mental spin, she said, and handed Celia a canary yellow tab. She then placed one in my hand and took another for herself. I swallowed mine and sat down on the mat on the floor facing them. As he cued the lights to dim, Celia was restless. She sat up, grabbed the vial and tapped two more tabs of tranquil into her palm. She paced the room, then took a third and washed it down with a mouth of E-light water. Fuck him, she said. I mean, I fucking, she stopped mid-sentence and just stared at the light. She twisted the antler from the chain on her neck and inhaled a pinch. I'd never seen her like this. Oh, Hannah Azzy, she said. You know, I've been with him sitting with his table and jesting after school and he didn't judge when I didn't make pineapple. I was feeling really bad, you know. Anyway, we were studying energetic properties between bodies and endogenous chemical release. I'm sure you were, I laughed, then saw her face slip. I thought he was into me. He was, obvi, I said. Yeah, but, you know, we took D at his father's place. He asked if I wanted to try the outdoor sauna and I'll be yes. So we sat there in the wood house on the hot bench and our towels steam around us and he moved up on me. We started kissing all that. He asked if he could put it in. And in the moment, you know, the way he asked was so matter of fact, I don't even know what you'd call it. We fucked. Maybe. How can you not know? As he looked perplexed. It was so good, but so bad. She said, half laughing like diving for clams. I ended up with a mouthful of sand. The way she described it, I imagined their skin slipping over each other like whales. The way their mouths mingled, lingering, the hardness of his cock, long and oddly thin. She said it hung at an angle. She was so soft and small and his body so tall and scrawny that when I tried to imagine them side by side, it seemed like he would pierce through her. X, Ys are so primal, I said, and not in a good way. Like they have this latent desire for the hunt and kill. As he glared at me and mouthed, stop. Really, though, Celia continued, he was just squirming done. I was like, what? Keep on. Afterward, when they dressed, he gave her a lame one-arm embrace and walked out to clean up and didn't return. She went inside and found him playing some zombie game on his device. Now he wouldn't respond to her messages. And of all things, she worried she'd done something. No response is the worst, she said. It's killing me. Her face was puffy and she was wearing comfort gear, flannel pants with hearts and bears, a black tee with a pink teardrop between the breasts and her black hair was impressively a mess. I thought she looked gorgeous, though this was not the usual Celia look. I blame stupid hominid mating habits. Immature males of the primate species haven't learned social responsibility. They're focused on conquering because that's what they're rewarded for. Celia had all of those endorphins kicking in. I wondered if maybe she should take some uppers even, not that I knew. I just hope the tranquil kicked in soon. He's just a kiwi apple with a dad on the factory board, as he said. No way he would test into pineapple on his own. Celia feigned a smile. It was no use trying to placate this away. We discussed inflicting some form of humiliation, which wasn't recommended by most of the advice offers online. Use at your own discretion, they said. But there were copious how-tos, Q&As, message boards addressing this. Where would it take place, IRL or online? Had the to-be-shamed sexted photos? Were there sex shots, videos even? GIF and post was promising. The limpdick.gif, comeface.gif, et cetera, et cetera, were more effective when, one, his face appeared in the image, two, he had a look of shame, and three, the message was dated clearly.
2: That was so wonderful, Anne, thank you. Um, I think that that passage of the book is a really wonderful representation of uh, something that gives me so much pleasure uh, in interacting with book, this book and with reading it, um, which is that it feels so intensely familiar um, in being, having been a teenage girl um, and just being within friendship groups, uh, but also uh, it is so defamiliarized by uh, its by the world building that you do right by the different pills by the pineapple uh, all sorts of things um, and it's as always like stunning to see and identify with something that feels or looks or appears to be so different than our shared reality um, and that's something that I think is so powerful about the book that it feels like the future and it feels like the 90s and it feels like right now and it seems to shift and when I first read this book which I think was in 2020 um, after having heard about it for several years I you know appreciated it but it's only gotten more relevant uh, as time has gone on. Something that has stayed relevant throughout is this experience of teenage girls on the page and particularly the narrator, Hannah. Um, And I was wondering if you could start by just talking about like where Hannah came from, where she emerged. Um, I had wanted to write about teenage girls
0: in a way um, that showed them as both intelligent and as um and as vulnerable and like excited and like full of despair as they are, just like um to to fully represent them on the page um Hannah, I guess came from a place of of wanting to explore this and wanting to explore this in a novel form Um, and wanting to explore like specifically with her friends. Um, It's it's important, the the trio um, of friends within this friendship as well. Um, And I think there is something um, that's so specific about female friendship as a teenager and, just the closeness um, of these friendships. Um, And I I feel like it's been depicted often in a short story format, but maybe uh, less so in a novel format. Um, And uh, I mean, I guess just thinking about in terms of literature, um, Amy Bender's Willful Creatures has some wonderful stories about, teenage girls and and the ways that they interact. And I think also, um, joy williams, um, I think it's winter chemistry uh, describes this really well. Um, and so i I think using that as a starting point, um you know i I thought that, you know it was also like I also had the question of, what is it like to come of age in in this society where emotions, if you have any emotions that are um, are unwanted, they're placated away um, with pharmaceuticals. And, you know, I think that there's a way that this does mirror where we are, but it's also, it's also an extrapolation of, of, you know, of where, where would we be if our if there actually was a drug for for every type of feeling that you have, um, or to make you feel however you want to feel, um, and you know, I think I think some of this too comes from reading, or or some of my thoughts also related to reading. Uh, Preliminary materials for the theory of the young girl, which had come out around the time that I, or which had recently been translated by Ariana Rains and was published by Semiotext around the time that I wrote this too, and just thinking about the young girl as the ultimate consumer and the young girl, like in this being all of us, um, you know, there is there is this. Th- within the book, it sets out this idea that we're all young girls in the sense of this corporate culture and of consumption. And and so in that way, it's like, well, let's take the young girl that we all are and, and look at what's
2: happening. And where, so you have these, what I think is so sort of irresistible and also very classic is having exactly what you mentioned, this triad um, you have just to give listeners a little uh, bit of context. Hannah is sort of the one that at least as a reader I found She she is sort of the one in the middle. She is uh, in some ways the most moderate. She is discovering, very much in the act of discovering. Um, Azzy is very uh, sexual, very free, confident. Um, And Celia is a little bit more um, like spiritual and her feelings are much closer to the surface. She's much more delicate, I think. Um, And so you have these different sort of, they're full, they're fully dimensional textual characters, but they're also these archetypes. Um, and you get the pleasure as a reader of watching these different kinds of people um, move through this techno pharma culture, um, where at, just as you said, um, all discomfort can be addressed by a pill. Um, and so I, I know that you've talked about this elsewhere, but I'm interested in um, perhaps, and perhaps we'll talk about it in a moment when we get to, cause I really want to talk about structure and mode when it comes to this book. Mm-hmm. Um, but can we talk a little bit about your, um, the genesis of being a pharmacist because you are professionally sometimes a pharmacist. Um, that is true. And yeah, so <laughs> to, like I, as someone who has worked many different kinds of jobs, I understand the cue of, of uh, having a reality being steeped in a very specific reality. That's maybe not perfectly symmetrical with like sort of what you're quote unquote into in life. Um, And the different ways you learn and think through um, what is exciting and relevant to you through your immediate reality. So I'm interested in, I guess, like, do you find that the, um, the, uh pharmaculture is the, was that the subject of a lot of your thought in making, putting together this book, which you have, I want to note, um, been working on for many, many years, um, or was it something that you were uh, interested in using as a lens only? I mean it was
0: it was definitely um something that I wanted to bring into the book, the pharmaculture. Uh yeah, that was an intentional, it was something that I had avoided writing about um completely. And uh, I felt like I didn't want to write about being a pharmacist in my creative work it was very just like no like this is my off time i'm not doing that and i think it was actually when uh i i took a few years off i was not working in pharmacy at all i guess it's like once you you leave even though i've come back to dabble in it um but it's like having left afforded me some time to think about it maybe in a more creative way and i didn't uh i didn't have i guess the the daily quotidian drain of going into work. Um, so I was able to be more playful with it. And I, so it was actually um, in graduate school when I started writing uh, this book and thinking about pharmacy and all of these pharmaceuticals because it is it is this like archive of knowledge that I have that is so specific. Um, and it it kind of permeates our culture in so many ways, um, just you know, pharmaceutical language. Everyone has seen uh pharmaceutical ads over and over again on TV. And so, you know, I just thought of maybe trying to address what my take is on it. I was trying to address my own views of pharmacy, but also to be playful with it. Um, I think also at the point that I started writing, the book, I was thinking about many, many ideas, maybe in relationship to drugs and consciousness and augmentation. I was TA in a class on art and biotechnology that was taught by Eduardo Katz, who did the GFP bunny. Um, And so was thinking a lot about augmentation and art and biopolitics. Um, I was reading like Henry Bergson on consciousness and william james um on or yeah William James, too, on consciousness. and like I had read varieties of religious experience a while ago, but was just thinking about like, well, what is it to be you know essentially a person in the world, and like how do pharmaceuticals um alter that? and I think Hannah Coming back to the friends and coming of age, you know, it's like these pharmaceuticals both alienate them from their true selves. And, and they're they're alienated in the sense of, you know, being on screens all the time or, you know, distant, alienated in the sense of like being distant from nature, but and and maybe from their own inherent natures. And and Hannah has this question of well, what is it to be authentic and what to be a person in the world and and because she has bad experiences with the one of the pharmaceuticals that she has to take valedictorian she you know really starts to question this because she doesn't like taking it and um but you know I think that question of like who am I and what is authentic was something that was driven by by the reading I was doing but also the sense of like well okay what if you're having these experiences, you know, naturally, is there a difference, you know, like a chemically induced experience um, versus just, you know, being a person in the world. And and I guess, yeah, that was something that, you know, she as a teenage girl trying to understand where she is within the world was like a, I
2: felt like it was right to ask.
0: Um, And it is
2: ultimately a liberatory narrative, I think. Ultimately, it is about Hannah deconstructing all of the different influences, chemical and not, that are sort of swirling around her and um, pounding at her gates. Um, mm-hmm. And something that, and just you know, for a little bit more context, everyone, she's gotten to an age in high school where everyone is uh, taking valedictorian um, in order to become essentially people who can be professionals in this culture, as opposed to um, less desirable working, have less desirable sort of working class jobs. Um, And so they're being primed for, they're being prepared for uh, being part of the middle upper class. Um, Mm -hmm. Her parents dwell in that place. Um, Her mother, Judy, is uh, in fact coaches other parents about uh, dosings and different aspects of wellness for their children and for themselves. Um, we hear from Judy during the uh, during the book, and we also as uh, and we also get the point of view both in um, a third person, close third um, from Harold, and we are also given a lot of pharmaceutical marketing language throughout. We mm-hmm. get side effects, we get, um, lists of interactions, all sorts of things, things, the kind of, um, copy that, you know, if you are someone who does take any kind of pharmaceutical, um, you get what every time you pick up your prescription. Um, so as well as the kind of marketing that you noted before that where, um, you know, you're just watching TV, and perhaps you're on a streaming service that is not premium, <laughs> and you so you're seeing so you're interacting with commercials, um, and there's suddenly like just constant pharma commercials everywhere. Um, mm-hmm. And someone reminded me recently that like it was what in the I don't know if you know the particular year, but uh, you didn't used to be able to advertise pharmaceuticals. Period. And yeah, you can't it was in some like- other countries.
0: In the nineties. Yeah. 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 You, it was only, I think it was in like the nineties that they started direct to consumer pharmaceutical advertising. I interned at a company that did direct or that they contracted out to companies doing this and wrote patient uh, inserts and, and just like the simplified, uh, you know, things that you should know before taking for, Uh, magazines when I was in pharmacy school so I am I am well versed in that and I suppose uh, yes (laughs) (laughs) I (laughs) what was
2: so what was that like
0: oh my god that was (laughs) uh so it was in McLean Virginia which you having uh grown up in the DC area uh would know McLean which is kind of this very wealthy area in the DC area office building. Um, it was really, it was a bizarre space, but I think it was also just, it was run by one woman who had her D, who had been doing this, uh, you know, since I think she had maybe even pushed for the direct to consumer marketing um, and she was contracting out to drug companies. Um, it was, it was a small office. She fired all of the employees, uh, beyond us three interns in the first week. So it was very stressful. (laughs) And it was also, I mean, for me, it was at a point in time where, um, I really, uh, hated pharmacy school or I, I, at that point I had just realized like I pharmacy school, this, this practice isn't for me, maybe I can do something with pharmaceutical writing um, to make a career of this. And it was it was eye opening in the sense that I was like, oh, this isn't the writing that like I've been dreaming about doing. But um, it was very much you know, tailored to writing for you know, a sixth graders reading level. Um, there were consultations with marketing and with legal, so it was it was like this group effort to develop. I mean, there was just so much energy and money that was placed into just writing up this brief summary of how you, the effects of the med, the the side effects, and you know, you don't want to make it too scary. Um, so it was it was like this introduction into this world of like pharmaceutical advertising and marketing, but also the language. I mean, I think that's something that I really um, had fun with in in the book was just playing with the language of pharmaceuticals and pharmaceutical marketing, because it is just people in offices coming up with these names that sound kind of fun or enticing. Um, And then having a focus group telling you whether or not they you know how the name sounds so it's um and and it's this language that permeates our culture in in so many ways um you know that we read in magazines um that you know just like it's it's a certain it's a very specific form of of ad language but um it's it's like fun and silly and also kind of absurd because, you know, it's just like talking about, you know, the wonderful effects and then having to say, and this might cause death. <laughs> <You> know, like,
2: <laughs> I, and I love the names of, of the, of the medications in your book. There's like Auto Rocks and delixir mm-hmm. and of course Valedictorian and they all feel totally credible. When did you decide that you were going to bring in these, bring in this ad copy, bring in uh, this information mm-hmm. about the medications and intersperse it throughout? Like where, when yeah. did you realize that you wanted to include that, and how did you begin to think about like how you were going to have that, which is also balanced with. Um, sort of there are like lyric uh, close sort of like lyric moments um, that are set off in a different type as well. There are, um, we have the sort of main spine of the book which is Hannah's first person. And then we also have, as I mentioned before we move into other POVs. So like talk to me about how um, you learned sort of that the the book wanted you to, or you required having so many voices that you wanted to house so many voices within the book and and how did you through the writing and editing process um sort of marshal and refine those um so yeah i think that the the multiple voices
0: stayed that was an idea that i had from the very beginning that that continued throughout the just throughout the editing process that 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 was something that was stable i think it was more um the challenge that i had was figuring out how they worked together um to create a coherent narrative because i the as i wrote um i found that i was writing plot into the book and um and that that the language wasn't it wasn't just this um thin skein of language and and this dialogue um from the different voices that was carrying it but but that there was also more of a traditional narrative so I it was something that I that the pacing was a, a challenge to work out I think I um I wrote many versions with um but I Hannah was always I think the most present character. I would also say, you know, um, Amanda, you uh, were actually really insightful when you did read the book in 2020, because I remember we had a conversation about the book and um, you pointed out, or or there is just this revelation that I had when you were talking about how you could sense that it was both adhering wanted to have of this more poetic quality and yet it was also um, more narrative based and that it it seemed to be somewhat trying to do both and and that was really um that was really insightful because I was able to see that it was um i that I was trying to do both things at once and that um in in that way i I then. Uh, tried to make the book like just to to I guess to embrace narrative and plot um, and and to say okay well this is what I've been doing um, how how do I how do I have these five voices interact and so I guess in that way the the pharmaceutical voice um, still has a poetic quality where I think the others are generally more narrative based, but there is, there is a third person section that is told from the, the town's perspective too. So that um, when the, the part that
2: takes place at the factory. Yeah. It's this genius thing that I think normally I would say often contemporary readers have a lot of issue with uh, POV shifts, which is so weird to me because we all watch movies and TV where there's constant Mm -hmm. perspectival shifts. and in some ways, the movement of the book, the structure of the book feels very filmic to me. And so, that when we do, you know, we, we have been traveling along with this main character with Hannah, but when we do, in sort of like moments of crisis or moments of illumination, move towards another character or get a sort of larger, as you mentioned, the Lumina Hills sort of POV, um, we start to understand better. Um, the world outside of our main character and because you've so assiduously built this world, I think it creates um, so much more dimension and gives us as re- readers so much more information um So I think I don't think we have mentioned mm-hmm. this yet that i I acted as editor for your book um and so and that's part of the reason yes. why you invited me to talk today. Um, but you're also an editor you've edited, many, many things um, as part of your publishing collective Meekling Press. And I'm interested in what it was like for the editor to be edited um, (laughs) over the last couple of years. Well,
0: I mean, to be edited by, I mean, you're such an insightful editor and, and writer. I mean, I just, I do want to acknowledge too, that you are a tremendous writer in your own right. Um, But And, and so I feel very lucky to have worked with you. Um, I, in part because I, you understood the book in a way, I think, you know, finding an editor who reads the book and understands it, you know, both what it is trying to do and its possibility is just, it's like, that's a a gift for a writer because, um, you know, it's, it's impossible to, to, uh, to read out beyond yourself or to to be objective about your own work. I do, I am very comfortable with editing and there's a way that I'm very comfortable with other people editing my work if if I feel like they are able to, to read the work and and see its possibility. Um, and so I think, you know, there's, but there's a way, you know, I could, I feel this ease with, reading and editing other people's work and, and being able to see it in that way that I don't feel like I have with my own work. So I think that also is a re- one of the reasons why it feels like such a gift to have a good editor or someone who, who understands your work, because I think it's impossible and you can't be both within the work and outside of it at the same time, um, so you know, sitting sitting with, you know the same ideas and and rewriting for eight years. It's just like there's no way to to just look at the book objectively um, and and see what exactly it's doing because there's just that experience of, you know, the desire of what to do with it. Um, and and you know, the and it's hard to see the possibility. So I think, you know, um, I think the process of being edited was it was interesting to me because i i I was able to see the book in in new ways and its its possibilities in new ways and to um, I mean, specifically for this book to make its narrative move um just. Or at least in in an attempt to to make its narrative move more cohesively. Um, I, think, I think there were it there after the first time that we talked about the book, there was a way that I condensed down, I condensed the book into, you know, in into a narrative trajectory that I think made more sense. Um, with the with the five voices you know there were there were multiple scenes and such so um so yeah i mean i i think you know it's it's i don't know what's what's your experience of writing versus editing your own work because i know you actually have a very different perspective on on being edited i think in some ways um in in a way that i really respect too um (laughs)
2: um I don't know what do you think that my perspective on editing is
0: (laughs) (laughs) okay well I guess I will say that I I know that there was there was a story of yours that I read that I had given you some feedback for and you were just saying that you you often don't invite feedback because it isn't um it isn't like you're able to measure what you want I feel like you have a determined idea of what is happening within the story and um and it it seemed to me that that you really uh that fewer well i don't want to say fewer suggestions but but that you know you generally have a pretty good idea of what you you are doing within a work and um that you take editorial suggestions and and weigh them against, you know, are they in line with the work? But I, yeah, I mean, and yeah and, go ahead, sorry and and perhaps find, you know, other people's comments to be, uh, less than insightful most of the time because <laughs> bec- because you have an understanding of the work you know I think or or just a determined view I you know I I totally respect that in some ways you know I I I had a really hard time in some ways in graduate school in uh in workshop because I had too many voices uh, you know just and and not that I necessarily it just it caused me to question you know I think that I'm someone who will listen to voices and respond to them and you know it was it was sometimes I had to like step away and just in order to hear myself think and write and I think perhaps your voice is more dominant in the sense that
2: you know what your voice is and you're you know I think I mean I think it could even be just a disposition thing I it depends you know if I feel like, as, as it sounds like, luckily you did with this project, if I feel like someone reading my work uh, understands what I'm trying to do, I am very uh, open to their suggestions. Um, yeah. I like sort of famously to myself, um, I once had a story uh, edited for Noon by uh, Diane Williams and she you know, sliced very like enthusiastically sliced pages out of the story. And I loved it, right. it made, me, it like made right. me actually laugh in joy when That's I opened true. the envelope. Yeah. And so I think it is It is. It is about That's trusting true. your editor, which is always important. Right. But just for our last right. question, cause I think we've got about time for one more question. Okay. Um, I'm thinking about impressions and, and sort of self-definition and definition of others around you. And I'm thinking about Hannah's habit of creating these masks. She learns about Memento Mori or death masks in school, and she starts using these uh, sensory input gloves to make portraits of herself and the people around her. And they are are not um, representational at all. They're sort of um, gestural, abstract, and they come in different colors depending on the person, the mood, sometimes like what enhancement they have imbibed. I, I became really sort of convinced, especially during my last read in preparation for this conversation, um, that it was for Hannah a way to to sort of reach towards a kind of self definition or to understand herself in the same way that a writer will try to understand a project as it's as it's happening. Um, so I'm interested in sort of like your your understanding of this element and how you thought about it as it as it sort of a uh, permeated especially the first part of the book
0: right I mean I I think that that's right on in the sense of I I think there's a way that Hannah is trying to define herself and feels like she doesn't take up space I mean she's also she's very aware of climate change and extinction and 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 a certain awareness of of transience or um insignificance and um and and that actually coupled with uh, a sense of alienation or loneliness, you know, there's there's a lack of of touch. There's there's a way that she very much yearns for touch and tactility, like in this world of screens, um, and in this world where you know she watches uh, cams, like. Chimp cams and and animal cams. Um, so the the gloves are almost a, an excuse for her, or a way that she she finds satisfies this desire. Um, and at the same time, it is it is a way for her to make something physical. You know, like so much in the world of Lumina is about. Facts and ideas and technology and it it's you know um, immaterial things you know just watching video clips and um, and then you know the supplements are are there to uh, to affect the ways that people feel and perceive but you know it's it's a way that she actually. Um, creates a place for herself within the world. And I think, and and is able to have some type of artistic existence, if you, you want to say that, or, and and maybe artistic existence in the way of being able to create a place for herself within the world. Um, I also uh, think uh, I was, reading at the time um about uh, Beatriz beatrice preciados tester junkie and she coins a term pharmacopornographic and uh, talks about how in society now we just uh, create and sell feelings we don't actually make physical things so it also seems to be kind of a in, in that sense it's it's pushing against that notion of 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 being in a uh, and maybe of being in this undetermined place, um, and not and not being a young woman, and not taking up space.
2: It's a way for her to to mark her presence, which it could be argued this book does um, in total. Certainly, sure. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Anne. It's been so wonderful to talk with you. Oh, thank you, Amanda.
0: Yeah, always, always a pleasure. It's such a beautiful and, book. Yeah. And
2: I, I really encourage anyone who's listening to to go out and buy it and read it. Oh, thank you.
1: Uh, that's a perfect dovetail. Um, thank you so much, Anne. Thank you so much, Amanda, for being here. Um, please check out Anne's new book, The Enhancers. You can check it out at, at our physical bookstore, 1818 North Vermont Avenue in Los Angeles or online at skylightbooks.com um thanks again so much for being here have a great day thank you so much justin
0: thank you for listening to the skylight books podcast series please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on twitter and instagram also don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations you can find us on podbean itunes and spotify Stay safe and healthy and we hope to see you back in our store soon.